I received an email from a skeptic. Actually, the email included his blog. This blog was titled The Absurd Irrationality of Evangelical Christian Apologetics. In fact, let me share the blog with you that he sent over to me. Here it is. There is that title. And here's what he writes in this blog. And it's actually based off a quote from William Lang Craig. Here's the quote. In point of fact, we can know that Jesus rose from the dead wholly apart from the historical evidence. The simplest Christian who has neither the opportunity nor the wherewithal to conduct any an historical investigation of Jesus's resurrection can know with assurance that Jesus is risen because God's spirit bears unmistakable witness to him that it is so. See, I haven't read this exact book of William Lane Craig, but he's been on the show a couple times before. And so I know his position on this. Here he is referring to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the five evidences that he always presents in his public debates. He covers the cosmological argument, the moral argument, the teleological design argument, the evidence for the resurrection, and then the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what he's talking about here, is that through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, you can know that Christianity is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, even apart from an historical investigation, that the evidence is not the deciding factor here. Well, what is it that the skeptic has to say in response to this that makes Christian apologetics irrational and absurd? Here's what he sent me. Why should skeptics bother debating evangelical Christians regarding the evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth if at the end of their day, their belief in the historicity of this event is not based primarily on historical evidence, but on their subjective perception of a spirit or ghost living somewhere inside their bodies. Regardless of how much evidence we skeptics are able to produce against the eyewitness authorship and historical reliability of the Gospels, the linchpin arguments of evangelical apologetics, evangelicals will refuse to concede an inch of ground due to the alleged testimony of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that the Spirit of God of God, the Creator, tells you that the Gospels are historically reliable sources of information. No amount of objective evidence against that position is going to change your mind. I therefore suggest that skeptics refuse to debate evangelical Christians regarding historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus until evangelicals first provide the evidence for their belief that the Spirit or ghost of Jesus is at this very moment living inside their bodies, communicating with them in a still small voice. Due to this core evangelical Christian teaching and belief, how can any evangelical scholar or apologist deny that their research is hopelessly biased? And there is the end of post. It's kind of interesting, but this is probably just my website, but there is a ad for Talbot School of Theology here in his blog. Um, all right, what do we do with this? What are we, how are we supposed to look at this? How do we understand this? Is Christianity, is Christian apologetics absurd and irrational? I don't think so. And I was able to have a little bit of an exchange with this skeptic through email and trying to help him see where I think he went wrong in some of his reasons to try to give a proper framework and perspective in the arguments that he was trying to make. And so I hope that no matter who you are and how you stumbled across this channel, I hope that today's conversation and working through this article will help you see the need for evidence, the, the way that Christian apologetics and, and Christians argue with evidence for certain points, the role 
of the Holy Spirit in Christianity and how we understand what is true and really maybe take a step back and, and evaluate kind of this worldview perspective and how different worldviews are approaching this issue. That is going to be the goal today as we look to see what would change my mind. Am I hopelessly biased? Nothing would change my mind. No amount of objective evidence would change my mind. Well, the answer to that question is no, that's not true. I would change my mind. In fact, I think Christianity tells us and teaches us that we should change our mind if the evidence proves that Christianity is not true and that Jesus did not rise from the dead. I think, in fact, if Christians don't change their mind, given objective, conclusive proof that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that Christianity is not true, then we would be absurd. It would be irrational. And that's what I think scripture teaches us. But I don't think that is actually the case. And that's what we're going to talk about today. My name is Ryan Polly. If you're joining for the first time, that is my name. This is a weekly show where I cover a wide range of issues all related to the Christian worldview. Because I hope and my goal is that through watching these different shows and the different interviews and the different guests that I have on, that you can learn to know what Christianity teaches, defend it well, and then faithfully live it out as followers of Christ. And so that is the goal that I have. And that is the conversation that we're going to have today is how do we understand how to defend Christianity and know what Christianity actually teaches? So working through this article, uh, first, I kind of already gave you a brief little introduction there on this quote by William Lane Craig and what he understands this. Now, I think what's really important to start off, what William Lane Craig is talking about here and what Christians often need to understand, and maybe a, a thing that's often misunderstood is that there's a difference between knowing that Christianity is true and showing that Christianity is true. The inner witness of the Holy Spirit. There are personal experiences, that being one of them, that is confirmation, that, that helps us to know that Christianity is true and gives us the confidence. There are miracle stories that we can see and experience and things that we go through where we can have this confidence in who God is. However, at the same time, that is not always best when doing apologetics to show that Christianity is true. Now, this happens all the time when I have conversations with Mormons. Uh, when the Mormons will come to my door, I'm going to Utah this summer with Maven. And, and the Mormons will often fall back on this claim that, hey, I know this is true because I read the Book of Mormon and I prayed about it. And I have this kind of inner witness, this, this burning of the bosom, this feeling inside me. And I just know that it's true. I feel that it's true. My response when I'm talking to Mormons is that I've read the Book of Mormon, not the whole thing, but I've read the Book of Mormon, prayed about it, and I feel like it's false. Whose feeling wins? And the same thing happened one time when I was at a, a summer camp. I was doing an atheist role play and the students actually thought I was an atheist. It was not one of those like, hey, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm acting like an atheist. Uh, they, I was introduced as an atheist. They thought I was an atheist and I was doing an atheist role play. And they were trying to convince me that Christianity was true, that God exists. And a girl shared the testimony of a miracle that God had done in her life. Now, as the atheist standing on stage, or the pretend atheist standing on stage, I responded. I said, look, that's awesome. I'm glad you're better. I'm glad that you no longer have this disease, this issue. I'm glad that you are doing better, but there's no way that you can prove that was actually God. You prayed about something and you went to the doctor and you got better. That's not a miracle. That's what science does. You see, there's things I think that are very real, very true about the Christian life. There are ways in which God speaks to us, the Holy, Holy Spirit this testimony of the Holy Spirit in us to confirm the message is true. And this can help give us that confidence. But it may not always be the best way to show that Christianity is true. 
right? And I think that's, we experience that where we share a story, we share a, a miracle with someone and sometimes they, they accept it and they go, oh my goodness, and you share your testimony and it brings people to Christ. And other times you share a testimony, it's like, well, I don't need God, glad you did. Uh, it worked for you, sort of attitude. It's easy to dismiss something. It's much more difficult to dismiss that evidence. And so I think this is kind of just a preliminary issue to address here with the, with the quote by William Lane Craig, is that we have to recognize the difference between knowing and showing. And I think that's often the issue that we sometimes come up with is, is a lot of the ways in which we try to show people that God exists is not the best. It can easily be defeated or it's just like, there, how can you prove that actually happened? And so I think when we separate these, they can give us confidence, but then there's other ways that are maybe better to help people see and know that Christianity is true. Now, working through uh, kind of his comments here a little bit, and he talks about how skeptics should not consider, should not even bother uh, debating evangelical Christians regarding the evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus, because in the end of the day, the historicity of this event is not based on the historical evidence, but on their subjective perception of a spirit or ghost, which is living inside their bodies. Now, again, as I mentioned, I had a little bit of a conversation uh, with the author of this blog, Gary. And if, I don't know if you happen to be watching Gary, I, I hope that my, my comments here kind of help clarify some of the points that, that we had in that email conversation. But I think what's really important to hear is that Christianity, first of all, does not teach that the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection is irrelevant. It doesn't, right? It doesn't teach that it's irrelevant. Evidence matters. It definitely matters. However, what we have to, to recognize is the worldview assumptions behind claims demanding evidence. We have to recognize that in a Christian understanding of epistemology, how do we know things? In the Christian worldview, we can know things through scientific investigation, through historical investigation, but we can also know things through personal experience. Right? There are multiple ways in which we can come to a knowledge of something, and it's not only empiricism, kind of a secular view through the scientific method. Or if you hold to a strong scientism, that science is the, forgot to silence my phone there, that silence is the only source of knowledge. And unless something has been tested and proven in the scientific lab, then you cannot know it is true. And this is a huge idea that is being presented in our culture today, and it often comes through when when asked when Christians are asked questions like, well, what is the scientific evidence for this? As if scientific evidence is the end-all, be-all, supreme source of knowledge. It also comes through in the way that we often talk about morality, that um, our moral standards and what we understand morality to be. Well, morality, by definition, is not provable in a scientific lab. You can't take murder, put it into a test tube, and test it to know that murder is actually wrong. And so... Morality becomes subjective. And this happens when I, when I do truth tests with students, that we, we run through a list of statements. Can you tell me what is an objective truth statement? Something that's true in all times and all places for all people. Doesn't depend on my personal feelings or beliefs, but it's true independent of my thoughts and experience versus something that is subjective, something that is simply based on my opinion or beliefs. And I share things like uh, the man's shirt is red. And they all, can all say objective. Uh, two plus two is four. Objective. Um, beach vacations are the best type of vacations. Subjective. 
I like red the best. Red is the best color. Subjective. Right. And we work through these. Uh, water is composed of two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. The objective. And then I say murder is wrong. And they say subjective. Abortion is wrong. Subjective. Or God exists. Subjective. Right. And so we sometimes without thinking of it, adopt this scientistic framework that you cannot know something is an objective fact, objective truth without using the scientific method and having scientific evidence. You can't prove scientifically that God does exist. And so it's simply based on your subjective personal opinion, your beliefs. And I think that we have to recognize that and step away. And I think the first thing that we have to challenge when it comes to this idea is that there are different ways to know things. I can know that it is wrong to torture innocent children for fun. I know that's wrong. It's not because science has told me. It's not because I've been, you know, there's been some test in the lab where we tested molecules. We can know it. Just, just look at it. I just got done teaching or I'm in the middle of teaching a chapter to my students on law and how different worldviews approach laws differently. And I, this week I showed them the movie Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce fighting for about 20 years to abolish the slave trade in England. And one thing he did consistently was appeal to what people knew to be true. These are valuable human beings. It is wrong to do what you're doing. They were raping women. They were dying. They were everything that was taking place during the slave trade, the horrible evils. It's like, you know, this is wrong. The other side was arguing from a very pragmatic ethic. Well, it's benefiting to us. If we get out of the slave trade, then France will take over and they're going to they're going to benefit and they're going to take over and where we left off and where they're going to soak up all these resources that we're not going to get anymore. One guy even argued, well, my slave gets three meals a day. He's well fed, has a roof over his head. This is better than what he would have had. This is a very kind of pragmatic approach. But I said, no, we can know that slavery is wrong. Look at it. We can know that it's wrong to torture innocent children for fun. You just have to look. We know that these things are wrong. And so the first thing we have to kind of push against in this kind of appeal for evidence is to recognize there's different ways that we can know things. Now, as I kind of explained in the email to this person, um, well, we'll just call him by his first name because it is on his blog, Gary. What I explained to Gary here, I said, Gary, there's different ways to know things. Uh, we can know things from historical and scientific evidences. Um, I haven't experienced World War II as my example, um, but I can know that World War II happened from the historical evidence that we have remaining from what is written in our history books. But people who fought in World War II know what it's like to be in battle. I don't have that type of knowledge, that experiential knowledge of what it's like to be in battle. You can tell me what it's like to be in battle. You can, you can tell me what happens in the mind. You can tell me psychologically all the chemicals that are released. And you can tell me, you know, this bullet. And you can tell me all the stories of battle. But I don't actually know what it's like to be in battle. I haven't experienced that. And that person who has experienced the battle can tell you what happened and they can say, I know this took place. I experienced it. And I could say, prove it to me. Prove to me that this event took place that you just told me. And it's possible that they don't have any proof that that specific thing took place in that specific battle. But just because they don't maybe have a historical evidence to prove it doesn't mean it's not knowledge. It's something that they have experienced. See, it's important to recognize here is that there are different ways of knowing, but these different ways of knowing are not necessarily contradictory. 
right? And that may not be the best example, but I hope you guys see what I mean, that these are not contradictory. To know something experientially and to know something evidentially, it doesn't mean that they necessarily contradict. The, the, the soldier does not need evidence to know that the war happened. His or her experience is it, is enough. The lack of evidence doesn't mean their experience is wrong. Right? The same way that I can tell you, I had this dream last night and in my dream, this is what took place. I can't prove to you that's what I dreamt, but that doesn't mean my dream is false. I could be lying. I could be making up and maybe you have no understanding. You have no idea either way, but it does not mean that it's necessarily false. And so I think that the first thing that we have to recognize is that evidence is not irrelevant in a Christian worldview. I mean, these are common verses and I show them frequently. But when we look at passages like John, the end of the book of John, he writes in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why did he write them down? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Evidence matters. What Jesus did matters. In John 1, 5, uh, John 1, uh, 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And ultimately, I think the biggest issue here talking about the evidence for the resurrection is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, especially like in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. See the whole entire chapter. I love 1 Corinthians 15. This is an awesome book. The whole chapter is talking about the resurrection of the dead, beginning with the evidence. Here's what happened. Here's a first importance. Here's what was passed along to me. And then here's what's true. If, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are misrepresenting God. You have testified about a false Christ. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You should be pitied. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's why in the beginning, I talk about, you know, would I change my mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you could show me evidence that Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, if you could show me a logical contradiction in the Christian view of God that shows that God is logically impossible to exist, if you can show me that Christianity is false, conclusively false, I'm not believing this anymore. It's not hopelessly biased. It's following the evidence where it leads. So evidence absolutely matters when it comes to a Christian worldview. Now, the second thing that I think that is really important is, is where the evidence matters. And this is where Christians agree is that if the evidence contradicts our experience, then there's good reason to doubt that experience, right? So if we have strong historical evidence that World War II happened, and someone else says, I lived during the 19, you know, 40s and 50s and there was no war or I didn't, or, or the opposite. Someone says, I experienced a war yesterday. I was fighting in this war and we know for a fact that never took place. Then we have a good reason to doubt that experience. It's a good reason to reject someone's experience when their experience goes against what we know to be a fact. Or if I tell you I was experienced being bullied, but there was never a bully, then I am delusional. I'm just making things up. And we see this happening all the time where people make up these false stories and we go, oh my goodness, how crazy. And then we get, begin to look into the story and realize there's no credibility. There's no weight. There, there's no way we can confirm this. Or even if there's evidence to the contrary, you got some problems. 
when I was a, a kid once, uh, my, we, we were doing something we should not have been doing. And uh, the neighbor got mad and called our parents. And uh, my parents took the phone call and the neighbor said, your boys just did something. And uh, I remember parents being a little bit upset with us. Well, we didn't want to get in trouble. So we did what maybe most kids, young kids do, but you shouldn't do. Uh, we lied. Uh, I don't remember which one of us, maybe me, I don't know. But we lied and said, oh, it wasn't us. We didn't do it. It was our neighbor. He did it. So my parents told the neighbor, hey, it actually wasn't my boys. It was the neighbor. So this upset, angry neighbor calls his mom and says, your boy did this. I heard it. And to which the mom said, um, he definitely did not do that. He's in Florida right now. <laughs> <laughs> to which I believe my parents got a call back shortly after uh, and we had to fess up that we had lied and uh, yes, it was us. That's an issue where we are clearly telling a lie and the evidence is contrary, where we say it was him, it wasn't us, it was him and he is not even in the same state. We were in Colorado. You see, we do have evidence showing that Jesus rose from the dead. But if there is no evidence or sorry, if there's evidence showing that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians should reject the resurrection, right? And I know that William Lane Craig also does not have a blind faith. He's not going to believe something in the face of contrary evidence. That is absurd. And I think that's the assumption here about Christian apologetics in this blog, talking about the absurd irrationality of evangelical Christian apologetics, is it is absolutely absurd if we are going to believe something in the face of contrary evidence. If I told you that, and I believe that I am six foot five, and I'm clearly not, I'm five foot ten. Or if I told you I believe that I am a millionaire when I'm not. Or if I told you I believe I'm the president, clearly I'm not. <laughs> That would be absurd. You, you would believe, you would know that I lost my mind if I honestly believe these things to be true. See, the, there's absurd beliefs where you're, where you're believing something so contrary in the face of contradictory evidence. And so if you start with this assumption that that's what Christians are doing, that Christians are believing something in the face of contradictory evidence, then I can see why you think that Christian apologetics and Christianity is absurd and irrational. The issue that I would ask, though, in response is, what is the contradictory evidence? Where's the evidence that Jesus did not rise from the, from the dead? Where's the evidence that God does not exist? Now, some will say, okay, fine, I don't have the contradictory evidence, but there is no evidence for God. There's no evidence for the resurrection. Right, and this is where we kind of have what you could consider maybe this, this blind faith, this blind belief, where you believe something and there's maybe not evidence for it. There's not evidence against it, but you believe it to be true. Um, and so we can't prove you right or wrong either way, but you are believing it kind of blindly. And why do you believe something if you don't actually know for it to be true? My position and what I believe very strongly and tried to show in many different videos on this channel is that Christianity is neither. Christianity holds to faith, which is a trust in things we have good reason to believe are true. That my beliefs are based on the evidence, on the reasons, on the both philosophical and scientific and historical evidences for the different truths of Christianity. And so... That is, I think, an irrational belief that is not there. And so if we we're going to say, you know, Christianity is irrational, let's see evidence that shows otherwise. Let's see evidence that goes to the contrary. Now, um, his quote, 
uh, William Lynn Craig's quote is simply saying that the witness of the Holy Spirit is an experiential knowledge that can help us know that Christ rose from the dead, even if we don't have evidence for it. That is very different, right? Knowing something, even if there's not positive evidence for it, that's very different than knowing something or believing something that goes against the evidence. Now, I've already kind of covered this a little bit, but the third thing I mentioned to him, and I might have to move a little bit faster, um, is that uh, I said to him, I said, that your statement that no amount of objective evidence against that position is going to change your mind. I said, this simply is just not true. If you could show that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then I would stop being a Christian. My mind would be changed. Why would I believe something I know is a lie? That is absurd. If I believe, if I know something is not true to believe it, that is an absurd thing to do. And that's not something that I am going to do. Um, Jay Whippet, thank you so much for that question. I will get to that here in just a moment. Um, as I kind of look through that and uh, I will get back to you. So thank you for sending that in. Thanks for joining me. Um, so I responded, my initial response. I said, in short, I do believe that this post from your website is a straw man of Christian, the Christian position. Um, what he explained is not core evangelical Christian teaching and belief. There's other aspects he talked about, right? With the, the, the spirit of Jesus or ghosts living inside of you, speaking in this still small voice. That question just came in this last week. I've addressed it a few other times. You know, I, I don't hold to this idea that God speaks in a still small voice. Um, in the sense that I don't know the, the voice that I hear in a head, if I'm praying and I, and I sense something, I, I, I hear something, how do I know? How do I know that was God rather than my thoughts? Uh, I think that's a hard thing to be able to prove that that was actually God. The only way I think we can prove it was God is if it lines up with scripture, but then that's what scripture says, or I'm thinking about scripture. And so I think that God can, you know, as, as um, Kyle Strobel mentioned in my interview with him, uh, illuminate things for us, that God reveals things to us. Um, I, I generally sit on the safer side that God only speaks to us through his word, or that's the most common way. I do believe he can speak to us in other ways, but that is often how he does it. Um, and I don't want to be someone that said, God told me, if God didn't actually say it, I don't want to put words in God's mouth. Now, I agree with this post. I agree with this post um, in that if Christians are holding to a blind faith, um, then we should dig deeper into figuring out why do I actually believe this? Right? I don't think that we should simply just sit there and say, I believe this and I don't ever have to look into it. Right? I believe that scripture teaches for us as believers to continually grow in the knowledge of who we are, right? To, to move past the milk into more solid food, to grow into these doctrines, to learn more about the doctrines of Christianity, grow deeper in these issues. And so if we sit there and go, well, I have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I believe that the resurrection is true. I don't have to look into this at all. I, I, I would say, well, why not? Let's, let's dig deeper. Let's, let's look at scripture. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at that evidence that is presented there. Um, and so I try to, I think similar to this post, I try to help people see why looking into the evidence, why looking into the deeper aspects of Christian doctrine and Christian theology and apologetics is, is useful, is helpful, I believe is, is nourishing to the soul, is what often excites us to understand and to know God more fully. 
we have to recognize that our faith is not blind. Our faith is trusting in things we have good reason to believe are true. And so that is a point of agreement, I think, is if we are just believing things without having good reason, um, we need to think deeper about those. Now, to this, uh, there was a response, and I thought this was interesting. Uh, he responded to this and said, okay, if evidence matters, let me ask you this. He said, if we were to discover four books which state that several decades ago, 500 people in India claimed that at the same time and place, they all witnessed a water buffalo speak in a human language for 30 minutes. Would you consider this sufficient evidence to believing that this event really occurred? I doubt you would. So why do you believe a similar preposterous claim from the first century that 500 people witnessed the appearances of the resurrected corpse walking through the walls and locked doors, eventually levitating into the clouds? Why is one of these claims ludicrous and the other perfectly rational in your worldview? Now, I think this is a really good question. But I think what we have to address here and what we have to consider is, are these two stories, are these two claims analogous? Is, are the Gospels simply just four books making claims and that's it? And, and I've talked about this in quite a few other shows, is, is that's just simply not true. Uh, we, it's not simply just four books that happen to tell a story like any series, you know, Harry Potter series or whatever is here's four books that make this claim. Uh, the Bible has external corroborating testimony, evidence, and even historians talking about it, right? That, that the fact that Jesus's death by Roman crucifixion is not only talked about in scripture, it's talked about by other non-Christian sources as well. And so you can look at these different sources and recognize there's really good evidence for the resurrection. It's not simply just four random books written that tell a story of 500 people seeing a water buffalo talk. It is uh, four separate historical documents that are corroborated by different people that have names and dates and locations that have been correct, that have other historians speaking into it, which is why you have skeptical scholars like Gerd Ludman and others that say that I take for the fact that the Christ Roman, Christ crucifixion or Christ's death by Roman crucifixion is a historical fact. We have other scholars, right, recognizing the other facts of the resurrection, which I generally present as being the death of Jesus by Roman crucifixion, uh, the tomb being empty, the disciples believing that Jesus rose from the dead and, and appearing to him, and then the transformed lives of the apostles like Peter and James and Paul. These are the four facts that I normally present, and, and these are historical facts. This is not just written in some book. Uh, these are historical facts. And so I think, and so I responded, I said, the reason why this analogy of the water buffalo speaking in human language, it doesn't compare. Why I do believe one and not the other is because the evidence matters. <laughs> it's because evidence matters that one makes sense and one doesn't. Uh, he su he's suggesting, and notice the worldview again, the presupposition, the story of the resurrection of Jesus is equal to that of four books discovered where 500 people in the book say they saw a water buffalo speak. Not including any of the external corroborating evidence, not, co not co considering any other historical claims that are made during that time, nothing else. That's what he's seeing is equal to this. And I said, look, it's, it's the evidence um, that matters. 
Now, not everyone agrees, and I think this is a really important point. Not everyone agrees that the evidence for the resurrection leads to a resurrection. But what we have to recognize is that the evidence presented, like the death of Jesus by Roman crucifixion, that's pretty much as, as guaranteed or as solid of a historical fact as you can get. Um, skeptical scholars, as I mentioned, accept this. The vast majority. And, and um, you know, you have Gary Habermas, who says, you know, it's like somewhere like 90, 95, 98% of scholars. It's way over 75 because the empty tomb is like the least accepted of the minimal facts approach is the empty tomb. And that's at like 75% of scholars accept the fact that the tomb was empty. And so it's, it's not just this belief. The fact that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion is a widely accepted historical fact. Now, not everyone obviously believes that then he rose from the dead, but that doesn't discount that Jesus was crucified. The same thing with the tomb being empty. Uh, the story was told in Jerusalem. There's, there's reasons to believe the tomb was empty. We know who it was, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, if the tomb was not empty, when the disciples began to share about the resurrected Jesus, then it would be easy for the people of that town to say, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Let's go to another tomb. Here, let's open it up. There's his body right there. Uh, but they didn't do it, right? They're making up lies saying, tell everyone, right? The, the Pharisees tell the, the soldiers, tell everyone that someone, the disciples came, stole the body while you were asleep, right? These are reasons to believe they're trying to cover up the fact they don't have the body anymore. The tomb was empty. And so we can go through and look at the fact that someone may not agree that the historical evidence for the resurrection actually leads to a resurrection. They may have some sort of naturalistic explanation, like a hallucination theory or something, but those explanations are only there because there is evidence that needs to be explained. That would not be the same with four books having the story of a water buffalo. And so I think to either not accept these historical claims, uh, either is that they're not important to mention for whatever reason, or that maybe we're not aware of them. And so why is one ludicrous to believe and one is rational? I think because one is supported by the evidence and the other is not. Now to this, I want to go over the last comment that he, he mentioned here. And then with whatever time we have, which I will have a lot of time, I'm going to get to some of the questions that you guys leave in the live chat so you can uh, post some more there. Welcome, student work. Uh, good to see you here again. He responds back and says, let's assume that the 500 plus people in the first century really did claim to see the resurrected corpse. Okay, so let's assume that these facts are true that we talked about. So what? What would be your reaction to claims that 500 peasants in some remote country today claim to have seen a resurrected corpse named Bob? Would you believe them? I would have no reason to doubt in a sense. I'm skeptical. I'm absolutely skeptical of claims. And I think that's what maybe people often don't think about some Christians or Christian apologetics or apologists is, is, yeah, I'm skeptical. When people present miracle claims and say this happened, I, my first thought is often, mm, did that really happen? Right? And so I'm not just going to simply say, oh, you said this is true. Well, then it is. Oh, 500 people. Okay. I'm in no matter what the claim is. Like I, I, I would be very interested to continue to look into this, but here's the last point I really want to make clear on this. And I think this is made clear in the last thing that he said that I'm about to read. Why would I doubt that? I think the main reason to doubt the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection, and the main reason to doubt these 500 people in some remote country saying that they saw Bob right, raised from the dead 
is if I don't believe that resurrections are possible. He says, I only believe the resurrection story because it's established superstition of my culture. No, that's not the only reason. I believe that resurrections are possible. And so I look at the evidence that Jesus was crucified, the tomb was empty, the disciples claimed to have seen the risen Jesus, and that the uh, lives of the disciples were transformed. And I look at that, believing resurrections are possible, and go, this makes the best sense based on the evidence. Of all the different explanations of hallucination theory and stolen body theory and wrong tomb theory and twin theory and swoon theory, those all have a much more difficult time explaining the evidence and they have to kind of get stacked on top of each other. Because if you only have a hallucination theory to explain the the, the eyewitness, the appearances, well, then where's Jesus' body? It should still be in the tomb. Well, now you have to add a stolen body theory onto that. Well, now who would have stolen the body of Jesus? Well, disciples. So now you're saying the disciples had to steal the body. Then they had to either lie or hallucinate the appearances of that body. But then now they're also willing to die for something they know is a lie. Like that just doesn't make sense. The resurrection makes the most sense. I don't accept and believe in the resurrection of Jesus because it's an established superstition of my culture. I believe it because it's the best explanation based on the historical evidence. And I think the, if I can be kind of more blunt, I think the only way around that is to either say the evidence is not historical evidence. It's just made up, which I that you're going against vast number of historians, both Christians and non-Christians, but also, or to, to say that a different explanation better fits, which I, I haven't seen a convincing case of that. Now he finishes by saying eyewitness testimony may be sufficient evidence for car accidents and murder cases, but it's not sufficient evidence for sightings of Bigfoot, aliens, or resurrected corpses. I want to challenge you guys, you listeners, you watching. What would you say to this? Eyewitness evidence is sufficient for car accidents and murder cases, but not for Bigfoot, aliens, or resurrected corpses. Why not? Why is it acceptable in one case and not the other? Here's what I think. And I I asked this and I haven't gotten a response back yet. It only is not sufficient evidence. Today's culture is anti-Christian. There's one comment that came in. Yeah, and and there's an aspect to that. I think it is only not considered sufficient evidence if you are anti-Christian to the point where you are anti supernatural. There's good reason for us to believe. And we know that car accidents and murders happen. And so when someone says, I saw a murder, there's good reason to believe that they saw the murder. And we now have eyewitness testimony that can be used as evidence in a murder case. It's interesting that he ropes in resurrected corpses with aliens and Bigfoot. I would say that there is an aspect when evidence is not sufficient or eyewitness evidence is not sufficient. We talked about that before. Is if someone came along and said, I have an eyewitness testimony. Oh my goodness, I saw a unicorn. Good reason to doubt that person. Because we know for a fact unicorns don't exist. I think we have good evidence against the existence of aliens. And so if someone says, I saw an alien, I think there's good reason to doubt them. And to say that simply having an eyewitness testimony is not sufficient evidence because you are 
claiming to have an eyewitness testimony of something we have evidence actually to the contrary, evidence against aliens. I think the same can be true of Bigfoot. There's only so much space for Bigfoot to exist. Is it possible that Bigfoot exists somewhere where we haven't found him yet? I guess so. But there's a finite amount of space and we've looked a lot of different places and we have not actually found Bigfoot. And so I think there's good reason to believe that Bigfoot is not real. And so if someone says, I saw Bigfoot, there's, I think, good reason to be skeptical of that, to question that and say simply claiming you saw Bigfoot is not good evidence. Considering there's a lot of people that have claimed to have seen Bigfoot and we know that they didn't. And so this would be considered maybe one of those. And so if you include resurrected corpses in that same category, then I can see why eyewitness testimony is not sufficient. Because you're starting with a presupposition that this is ridiculous. It's like Bigfoot and aliens. It's ridiculous. Clearly these things don't exist. And so you're not going to trust any eyewitness testimony claiming you saw Bigfoot or aliens. The same is true when it comes to a resurrection. And yeah, if resurrections are impossible, then eyewitness testimony is not sufficient to ground a resurrection. The question though is, are, is a resurrection impossible? Why are resurrections here put in the same category as aliens? Why not in the same category as murder cases? Are resurrections impossible? Are miracles impossible? Well, here is my response. Is miracles are only impossible if God does not exist. Miracles are only possible if God does not exist. If God exists, if the creator of the universe exists, and as Frank Turk says, if the greatest miracle has already occurred, Genesis 1.1, God creating an entire universe out of nothing. And we have good scientific reason to believe that miracle occurred. If the greatest miracle occurred in Genesis 1.1, then the rest of them are at least possible. If God could create an entire universe out of nothing, then making a man walk on water or starting up a beating heart again is, is easy. That's simple. And so what we recognize here is many times in rejecting the evidence for the resurrection, it's starting with a naturalistic bias. We have the naturalistic bias of scientism saying we need scientific evidence to make sense of this, that experience somehow doesn't, you know, get included in that picture. But then we also have a naturalistic bias saying that supernatural things don't happen. God does not exist. Therefore, resurrected corpses are irrational and therefore eyewitness testimony of a resurrected corpse is not sufficient evidence. However, if God does exist, he created an entire universe out of nothing. The miracles by def clearly are then possible. And then an eyewitness testimony of a miracle is sufficient evidence. And so I hope that you guys see this idea that th this, these presuppositions that are brought to the conversation that is not arrived from the evidence. Nothing here is, is come to from evidence that Jesus did not rise from the dead or that God does not exist or that the resurrection actually is impossible. It is saying, starting with a secular worldview, starting with a naturalistic bias, then it becomes irrational and therefore... Christian apologetics trying to argue for the evidential case for a resurrection is absurd and irrational. I don't think that's the case. It starts from a, I start from a very different perspective. Evidence actually does matter. And if you could present positive evidence that Jesus did not rise from the dead, I would change my mind. I think I'm pretty open-minded uh, in that sense, or at least I try my best to be.
And so I'm not believing in superstitions. I am believing what is based on good reason to believe is true. I have embraced reason. I have embraced science. I have embraced rational thinking. I'm not committing a straw man fallacy of a view to try to reject it. I am trying my best to address what is in scripture, what is in history, what is in science, what our experiences have to inform us of what is taking place and to make sense of the world the best that we can. So that is why or that is my response to this blog. I hope that is kind of helpful as I work through that conversation. So there are a few questions here in the live chat. If you have other questions, you can submit those. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. Uh, So let me read over these here really quick. All right, Jay Whippet, if you are still with us, here we go. There is your question. I have a question. I'm not messing with you. Thanks for not messing with me. I don't know if you guys can read that against my white shirt, but it says, uh, real question, why is the Trinity not mentioned in any clear way in the Old Testament and absent in Judaism, but central to the New Testament faith? Of all the strong rebukes for the people in the prophets, they never rebuke the people for incorrect views on the Trinity, though those are the most common heresies in the church historically. Well, I think... uh, what we see in scripture is that God is progressively revealing himself to us in his word, right? We don't get a full picture in Genesis 1, right? And so we, we understand God is creator in Genesis 1. And then as God works in his people in the Old Testament, uh, we see more of his character, more of his attributes, his love, his law, the different ways in which he is showing himself as a provider for them in the desert, And as their ruler throughout the Old Testament, the kings and and that whole issue with Israel. And that it is in the New Testament that we see a much clearer picture when Jesus Christ takes on the flesh of the invisible God and reveals God to us in a much much more personal, unique kind of way. And so there are aspects where, right, we can go back in Scripture and we can kind of see the Trinity after having that fuller revelation given to us, right? When in Colossians 1, it tells us about Jesus being creator. John 1, 3 tells us about the word, Jesus being the creator and bringing all things into existence. And then we see in the creation account, the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the deep and God uh, creating there. And so we can see and we can kind of read back in based on what we know now and go, oh, there's some aspects But you're right, it's not super clear. But I think you kind of answered the question at the very end. And it says, why is the Trinity not mentioned in any clear way? Well, first of all, I don't know why. Uh, Right? The the questions, as Greg Kokel often says, questions like, why didn't God or why did God? the The answer is often, I don't know, unless God has told us. So why didn't God give us a more fuller, complete revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament? I don't know. I don't know why God didn't give us a more complete picture of the Trinity back in the Old Testament, but we did get it in the New Testament. And so why is it not mentioned in the Old Testament and why is it absent in Judaism? Well, it's absent in Judaism because in Judaism, it's following the Old Testament and the Old Testament is a very central monotheistic faith. It is central to New Testament faith because in the New Testament, we have the person of Jesus come who reveals the Trinity to us, who claims to be God, shows himself to be equal to God, Uh, has authority of God, heals people of their diseases, not only of their diseases, but also forgives sins, right? So I, you know, he heals the sins of the paralytic. And then the paralytic and the people say, well, who are you who can forgive sins? And Jesus says, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, stand up and walk, right? When Jesus calms the storm, it was not just to get them out of a bad night, right? He is showing that he has power over nature, 
right? And then you look at the disciples, and I don't remember exactly off the top of my head how the disciples responded, but it's like, who are you, Lord? Right? They recognize the power of God in Jesus in the stilling of the storm and the miracles that he is performing. And so what we have is Jesus Christ coming in the New Testament showing us that he is God, then leaving and promising us the spirit of God that will come, we get a much more clear picture of the Trinity, especially in the baptism of Jesus, what you again don't have in the Old Testament, where Jesus is in the water, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit is descending in the form of a dove, then God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You have God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ in three separate spatial locations at the same time, where we get the clear understanding of the Trinity having three distinct persons. The Old Testament gives us a very clear picture that there is only one God. Isaiah speaks about this uh, all the time. I, the Lord, am one. There is none before me. None will come after me. I know of no other. And so we see very clear in the Old Testament, one God. And so we see the Jews have a very monotheistic faith. In the New Testament, Jesus comes, claims to be that one God. We see in the baptism three different persons at the baptism. And the Christian then understands this concept and we construct kind of the doctrine of the Trinity to make sense of what we see in Scripture. And that is why then a New Testament Christian faith is very Trinitarian. Um that's a really good question, though. And it says there, of all the strong rebukes for the people and the prophets, they never rebuke the incorrect views of the Trinity uh, because there wasn't that understanding of the Trinity in the Old Testament. So they don't have that to rebuke with. But as your second question here points out, and I think I left this up the whole time. Um, but when we see in the New Testament church that the Trinity is, is central, right? If we reject the Trinity, we either are rejecting the divinity of Jesus, which is a huge mistake, or we're rejecting the three separate unique persons. And then we're holding to some sort of either tritheism or we're holding to some sort of modalism where God is just in different forms and different modes of existence, right? And he's a father sometimes and a son other times and a spirit other times. And so the, the New Testament church clearly saw these as heresies, as, as false teachings of what we now know. But because that was not revealed knowledge in the Old Testament, there wasn't this way to call people out of these heresies because they weren't aware by clearly focusing on the one God that what they were doing was wrong. So I hope that helps. But this is such a good question because God has revealed himself right progressively throughout his scripture. And so we have a somewhat changing picture of God. It's not that God is changing, but we uh, our, our understanding of him is growing and adapting as we learn more about him. And it's the same thing that happens with people. As people learn more about me or learn more about someone, all of a sudden you go, oh, I wasn't aware of that aspect of you, right? And we have this more fuller, complete picture as we get to know someone better. And so hopefully that helps uh, answer that question. Thank you so much for sending that in and for joining us. Um, all right, let's see if there's other questions. That is a comment. Oh, you love my thoughts. Uh, let's see. What are the thoughts? Uh, based on, okay, what I was talking about here, the resurrection, a student work. Thanks for joining again. You are here frequently. I appreciate, thanks for being here. Um, because we have such good evidence for the resurrection, can you please give an example of good evidence that would possibly show that it was not true? Um, yeah, well, obviously it would be it would have to go against the evidence that we do have, right? And so you think about this like in a murder trial. If someone is on trial and you have really good evidence that they uh, are guilty, 
you have a murder weapon, you got video, you got eyewitness testimony, you got fingerprints, you got blood, you got all this kind of stuff. What would be good evidence that, let me put this back up. I don't know why I put that away. What would be good evidence to show that it's not true? Well, you would need to have this person uh, being in a different state during that time. You would need to show, uh, have other eyewitnesses, right? Corroborating, saying, no, 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 they were with me at this birthday party. They were, they could not have been there. Uh, you need to begin to present contradictory evidence or evidence that contradicts what we have. And so if we have good evidence that Jesus was crucified by Roman crucifixion, that, that the tomb was empty, that uh, the disciples believed to have seen the risen Jesus, that, that their lives were transformed, I think good evidence against would just show either that Jesus was not killed by crucifixion, uh, that Jesus's tomb was not empty, that we still have the body, the bones, of Jesus buried somewhere that, that we have some sort of uh, testimony in the early writings instead of the, the leaders admitting that the tomb is empty by telling the, the soldiers to, to, to lie and that the, 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 um, uh, that someone stole the body that instead we have someone say, no, 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 look, here's some people. They took the disciples down and showed them the tomb, right? If that's written in some early document, that would be something to consider. Uh, if we had good reason to believe that, uh, that the disciples did hallucinate or are making up, or if the claims of the eyewitness accounts are super late, then that I think would be evidence to show that it's possibly not true, or at least more difficult to believe. Instead, we have that, you know, even, you know, uh, secular scholars like like uh, Bart Ehrman, that the tradition of the eyewitnesses in 1 Corinthians 15 comes from within five years of the event itself. And I think it's Gerd Lubman that goes even closer and says, I think it's even two years from the event itself. So this is not this late legend that would cast doubt on the, the truthfulness of this event. Instead, it is... Uh, it, it's quick. It's happening very quickly. This this word is spreading very fast in the region it took place in. And so uh, I think that would be maybe be another piece of evidence is if the disciples never shared this information in Jerusalem, right? If all the events happened in Jerusalem and then the disciples like booked it and they only talked about this stuff for the first, you know, 100, 200 years in, in places far, far away with, that would have no idea whether this took place or not. I think that would be reason to be skeptical of this. Um, and so I think that you would have to present evidence that goes contradictory to what we do have and to show either what we have is false or what we have is not as good as it is. And there's actually something else that's better evidence than contradiction. Um, I haven't seen that. Um, I don't think that that evidence is out there. And so um, I think there's good reason to believe the evidence that we do have and to believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Um, all right, Joshua Estrada. All right, so what about the devil or hell? I don't see the devil mentioned in the Old Testament or hell. They mentioned Sheol and Satan, but it seems to be different characters. Satan means adversary. Would the same argument apply to the devil and hell? Is it something Jesus revealed? Um, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I would say that I don't think that there is good reason to believe that these are different characters. Uh, that the devil and Satan are one and the same. I believe that Sheol, um, Hades are, are, are different understandings or different ways of explaining this, this idea of the place of the dead, of hell. Uh, Jesus did absolutely come and give us a very clear picture of what hell would be like, uh, of who the hell is, the, the role of Satan. We see that revealed throughout scripture, but I think that Satan is even there from the very beginning. And so, um, 
I do believe that the devil and hell are revealed both in the Old and the New Testament. I don't think they are different characters. Um, and so I do think that what we learn about in the Old Testament and what we learn about in the New Testament are going to be um, complementary ideas that can help give us a, a full picture of, of who Satan is, the role of Satan in the rebellion against God, uh, the role he had in the Garden of Eden, and then ultimately uh, what he is doing now and ultimately what will happen to him at the end of time. And so um, I, that is my view. Um, and I don't know if I perfectly answered exactly what you were looking for there, but I do hope that that helps in addressing your question. So with that, everybody, thank you for those questions. Next week, remember, next week is going to be a live Q&A. You have the chance to call into the show and have a conversation with me so I don't accidentally misrepresent maybe your question or don't answer it as well. And you can push back a little bit. You can have that conversation. I love that. I think it makes it way more fun is the conversation aspect, the pushback in trying to understand these topics more fully. So next Friday, I believe that's like April 30th at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time is going to be that live Q&A. That's the next thing that's going to happen. If you've enjoyed the show, I would love it. If you subscribe, if you share this with a family or friend, that would just help get the message out to more people to benefit them. I just love doing this. And if this is a help, a benefit, to you. Um, man, that makes me feel good. And I love doing that. There's other shows that you can check out over here. Boom, right there. Uh, other interviews that are taking place. And so I just hope that you guys enjoy this. I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I hope that you continue to think deeply about God and Christianity. They're worth thinking about. And I hope that this has given you greater confidence to stand true for or stand firmly in the truth of Christianity. Um, because God is real. Jesus is true. He is the truth. And that is the hope of our salvation. So guys, thank you so much for taking this time and spending it with me this week. I will see you again next week. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye, everybody.